Imagine for a moment that you are upside down. Some of you may be able to remember this from a personal experience, or perhaps instead you conjure a mental image of what you might look like in an imbalanced or uncomfortable situation. My name is Charlie, and you are listening to episode 7 of Shit I'm Not Proud Of, Upside Down. Today, we meet with Jen, who seems to know about as much about walking on her hands as many of us understand about using our feet. Jen is an acrobat and teaches acrobatics in Denver, Colorado. If you have not had the pleasure of learning how to be upside down with Jen, highly recommend checking her out. Of course, you can do this while you are listening to the show. The links to all of her online stuff are available in the show notes. I asked Jen to join us to understand better how the lessons learned from handling physical imbalance can show up as handy life lessons. In her own words, Balance is work and it's moving. Balance is work. For many of us, there are more forces pulling us in different directions than we can probably even imagine. Some of the most important ones demand that we become practice at this work to maintain balance. My child needs me, my relationship needs me, and those things need me to also be me. So if I give up everything or stop everything, change everything, then what am I? And with that, we'll go to the studio. Jen, tell us about yourself. What, what do we know about you? Well, as you said, I'm an acrobat and really not like a Cirque du Soleil by any means. Like, don't let me fool you on that. But I like to teach partner acrobatics and along with yoga and those things kind of blend together in my life. And so that's what I do professionally mainly is teach. And I'm a new mom and that is literally turning my world upside down and inside out. And I walked in here after a big poop explosion. (laughs) So I had to change my shirt. My husband and I had to wash the baby in the tub because there wasn't like enough wipes to handle it. So like our world is... is I never considered that there's like a tiered approach to like, there's different levels of escalation to how much uh, you have to do to combat like whatever cleaning. Well, it's how much surface area. You graduate from baby wipes to like a bathtub or like a a garden hose. hose. Right. (laughs) We were there. We were at level garden hose this evening. (laughs) That's that's great. You should have like a a metering system or like the the doomsday clock. But It's it's... pretty much how far up the onesie the poop has traveled (laughs) and that determines... (laughs) What tools are going to be needed? Smokey the Bear has got some competition coming for like the metering <laughs> system that you have. <laughs> Sounds like a great baby shower gift. I, I, I wonder, like, yeah, we'll go find like a woodworker or something like that to do some sort of artistic thing on the wall that shows that level of escalation. Code brown. <laughs> we got a new episode. <laughs> Screw this. We got a new plan. So tell us more about this. What, what What's the most important thing to the uninitiated to know about being upside down? So... Being upside down in the physical body, like a headstand or a handstand, I think one of the important parts about getting into that sort of practice is being comfortable with being a bit uncomfortable at first, right? We might not know where we are in space when we're upside down, what our legs are doing, how to to really hold ourselves and find balance at first. So it's often messy and scary. It's really scary to do these things as an adult to learn. Like when we're a kid, we throw ourselves around all the time, not really worried about the ground or gravity. And then you're grown up and that shit's really scary. So it takes a bit of leaning into that vulnerability of I might fall over. And so one of the ways I really love teaching and learned from a lot of my teachers was to to work with a spotter, to work with support, to help keep you safe. So even if on some level you're like, oh my God, this is scary, I'm going to fall over, you have someone right there who's like, I've got you. You're not going to get hurt. And when you have that support, at first it's like heavier spotting, and then it gets lighter and lighter. The more comfortable you get, the braver you feel with it. And mm. so it takes being brave to try it out. And then you find how much fun it is. I love being upside down. And at first was really unstable and wobbly and didn't really know what I was doing. And now I'm in a place where I find that that's very meditative for me to be upside down feels really calming and peaceful, Hmm. but it certainly didn't start out like that. There's endless metaphors for (laughs) how that seems to apply to life. Sure. (laughs) I love it. Falling over, I think is probably the most fascinating one because there's been an ongoing conversation we've had with ourselves uh, on this show and in life about the the there's this thing that happens when dealing with 
heights, but I think fear in general, mm. where the mind can telegraph and imagine some scenario or something that happens sort of down the road that ends up kind of coloring this experience. It, I think, is kind of underneath a lot of why we sort of struggle to or are, have to manage our fears around these mm. sorts of things. Well, and you can see that very much physically. Like if I'm working with somebody who's going upside down and they're scared, their body's going to take a defensive shape. They're going to arch their back or do funky things with their body in order not to fall. Right. And you can see that with people who just are walking down the street, like, they're carrying some sort of emotional baggage. You can read people and how they move and use their body. And when you get into a practice like inversions being upside down, the really beautiful straight lines, even when somebody strong and graceful falls, they fall really well, mm. as opposed to somebody who's very new and afraid of, of the ground, essentially. <laughs> but when you're upside down, you're already pretty close to it. So. This is, yeah, I think that one of the first lessons that I learned in training martial arts was they, they would have us all literally stand in a line and just fall over yeah, and, how and to fall, fall over safely. and fall over and fall over. Mm -hmm. It's such a good, juicy topic to lean into, I suppose, because there's such this natural implication. Like, it's hard for me to not use the creative part of my mind to extrapolate those ideas or that concept into this sort of more fuzzy or this more metaphorical sense of mm -hmm. like the way that we require or build or, or develop confidence or, or comfort blankets are kind of built into our actions. And the reason I think that it's really satisfying to talk about both in the physical and the metaphorical sense is because so much of how we build these defenses or, or, or find confidence in what we're doing is connected to how much experience do I have doing something a little bit unruly or a mm. little bit crazy. Well, I think part of that is, is the decision to make a calculated risk. Mm. Like, I'll do this this far because I know I'm only going to fall a certain amount or like the downfall won't be that bad, right? Sure. So maybe not putting ourselves fully on the line to do something because the risk might be unknown or scary. Mm. So we're like, we'll dip our toe in that. So if we're talking about this in the more metaphorical sense, mm. we, we are, we're starting to introduce this new framework or maybe you and I can sit down and write a new rule book tonight that's built out of these ideas that you're practicing and that mm. you're teaching. And when life throws obstacles at us, we have to deal with them. And it gets kind of interesting when you're totally in control of sort of the severity, like what you're talking about mm -hmm. is a magnitude thing when you talk about risk assessment, right? I was drilled the sort of event response outcome framework into my head, like that was given to me as sort of training for life, even when I was quite young. And I'm still sure that I'm getting stuck on some things and managing that framework in my daily living. Like, there's still plenty of instances that it's not super easy, even though I'm aware aware of like how to assess that on a on a more like conscious level. So I wonder what has your practice taught you about sort of dealing with those situations or how do you think that in your own story you've gotten better or more adept or more confident mm -hmm. or whatever at managing this framework of like being more mindful about your response to whatever happens. Sure. I think one of the things I've learned is that like even when the the worst case scenario happens, like many of us, we live with that worst case scenario dialogue in our head all the time, that even when it actually does happen, you still go on, you still get up, you keep going, you might be like bruised and dusty, whatever, <laughs> emotionally, however you want to put it. But, yeah. but the, oftentimes the worst thing like that we are afraid of happening is not as bad mm. when it really happens. Yeah. Right. You're like, oh, okay. I hit bottom or like I got my heart broken or I made a big mistake. I fucked up. Right. What up? Can I say that? You can. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I think I should have. Yes. Um, and, and then it's maybe not as bad as we thought, you know, I think fear of what can happen changes the trajectory. It holds us back from doing a lot of things, putting ourselves out on the line. Yeah. Same thing. Like, you know, physically fear of falling over in a handstand is going to keep you from actually trying to do it. One of the things that happens when I come to those moments of realizing that, oh, yeah, the rock bottom is not that bad or, or the impact, whatever thing that I was telegraphing was going to happen to me does actually happen. Most of the time, personally, when those moments find me, it's kind of funny, right? Like, yeah. I want to lean into this because I'm always curious about the, the parts of this experience that make me laugh. I mean, I think that's kind yeah. of 
in our DNA for why we, we show up to this studio and that kind of thing. Like the juxtaposition between how you pictured something happening versus how it actually went down. Like, sure. It's silly because it's, it's always just like the, Oh man, I I imagine this being so much worse than it actually is. Totally. Like, Oh, it's not that bad. Do you have a concrete example of when that overestimation or even gross underestimation happens to the point where it kind of makes you giggle a little bit Hmm. after the fact? I mean, I have so many embarrassing (laughs) moments in my life. I just have to dig in. That's that's actually one of my (laughs) questions for you. (laughs) Because you always tell these stories that just crack me up of like falling into chairs or falling into walls or like when you're practicing one thing, like knocking something else over, like those embarrassing stories, I think. It's a funny way to sort of connect this phenomenon that we're describing. I think maybe I've just gotten really good at falling and recovering. Like mm. I was so awkward and nervous my whole like adolescence and my teens and felt like I could not stand up in front of the class and speak. I would turn bright red and like shake and sweat and all these things. And so like if you wore the wrong shirt, like felt life ending at that age, you know. And now I've literally walked into walls in front of a bunch of people and that been like, ha and, and keep going with my day. And like those things, they just don't hurt as much anymore, but right. they're pretty darn That's funny. like such a beautiful way that, I mean, it sounds to me like it's a very convincing, you've, you've managed to integrate a practice of being able to kind of laugh at this stuff or disarm or the part that's like my clumsiness. Right. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, totally. I'm thinking about it in this context of like when, we do telegraph these fears or when we do sort of project into some false future about something that's going to happen. And it turns out that it's not that bad. Like one of the things that me and some of my other yoga friends talk about is how easy it is to kind of bring this stuff up and, and talk about it and teach about mm-hmm. it and give lessons and this sort of thing. But then there's this whole other end of the chessboard where you have to actually live those things that you might theoretically just be talking about. Oh yeah. And uh, I mean, I can tell you from experience, yoga teachers are the most hypocritical. Like (laughs) we, we try our best. I'm sure. I mean, I try, I know I can't speak for others, but I think we, we just have this opportunity, especially when we're in front of people to share something that we've later got to mull over and learn the lesson from, but just like anybody else, it takes some time to like turn in altercation with a person at target into a beautiful dharma about <laughs> peace and acceptance like right. it doesn't always happen in the moment <laughs> like is, we're yeah. human sometimes it reaction. just takes time though yeah exactly mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a that's a wonderful practice i think that if you can live that yourself that's like a good huge commendable stage on its own and then if you can commute that and and give that gift to others like that's a big deal you know one of the lessons that i have learned from you over these years is do the work. I'd like to think that I've stopped trying to find shortcuts, but I've always had this instinct to do things efficiently, you Mm -hmm. know, attack things very directly and with a lot of energy and that sort of thing. And like, that's shown up for me in therapy where therapist says like, go be brave or go be, (laughs) you know, fearless or tackle whatever thing that you're after, that kind of thing. Like, but the exact same lessons tend to show up in some of these really difficult practices of like, you know, if you don't have the physical strength and you keep trying to do this thing, like you do actually have to just keep doing it and you do totally. have to just keep falling over. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the falls get less dramatic. I think the first time I tried to kick up into a handstand in a yoga class, I like wiped out, kicked over <laughs> someone's water bottle. And I'm like, oh God, I'm so embarrassed. I'm never going to do that again. Um, because I didn't have the understanding of, how intricate it really was. Mm -hmm. And then as I started learning from a bunch of different teachers, I picked up little bits and I could focus on a thing at a time and get really good at that part Mm. and then move on to the next part. And then they all came together and started to get better and better. And it's a practice that's really fun, handstand specifically because it changes all the time. Sure. Like I was like so proud of doing handstands while super pregnant until <laughs> my heartburn started bothering me. But my weight of course was very different. I had to lean way back right. and I like wanted to see what my line actually looked like. And then after I had my baby doing handstands, I had to get that back. And right. so it was this fun re- roller coaster and adjustment. And I think that happens with injuries and, Yada, yada, yada. Like, it's not like you get a handstand one time and now you're perfect at it. It's always evolving and it's balance is 
an action. It's not just a state of being perfectly still. It's action. Like balance is work and it's moving. And then you want it to move less and less and less. And then you have those illusions of the perfectly still handstand. What do you say to students or to yourself or anybody who's going through this process of like trying to chip away? How do you reinforce the do the work principles? Mm. If, if I'm working on something and it's just like not quite getting there and I'm getting kind of frustrated or do you have mantras that you go to or do you have like ideas that, that you find really resonate for how to sort of diffuse some of that frustration or some of that tension? Totally. One of my favorites is to first take a few steps back. Like if you can work on the foundations, then the next steps are going to come easier with time. But if you're working at that level of frustration or at the level that's just beyond your reach, if you go back a little bit, reinforce your foundations and spend some more time there, the next time you approach it, it's probably going to feel a little bit easier. And that made me think of, I had this one student who just cracks me up, this woman who came to these handstand workshops I was leading, and she would do something like a handstand and then come up to me and say, what am I doing wrong? And I'm like, well, that's not our point. Let's change that. Mm -hmm. Like, not what are you doing wrong? What are you doing right? You're working on a handstand. This is what it looks like. And this is the next part for you to work on. Uh, For instance, it was like shoulder mobility. Like, let's open up your shoulders so that we can balance a little bit more straight upside down. And it was really interesting because I think she was in that vulnerable place of, I want something and I don't quite get how to get it. And so therefore I'm doing it wrong. Something's wrong with me. And then it builds, of course. And so you try to take the story out. Like nothing's wrong with you. You're doing something and we're going to try to do it a little bit differently. Mm, I like that. Taking the story out. That's a good way to put it. Oh, we have so many stories. And I had so many myself, too. I remember telling myself and telling other teachers, well, I can't do a handstand. I broke my arm snowboarding. I have metal plate and screws in my arm. And my surgeon said, I probably won't be able to do a handstand. And thankfully, he was wrong. But I kept that as evidence against being able to actually try doing the thing. I have my own framework for deciding when there's like a reasonable step or a reasonable level of defiance to take. But there is this kind of funny relationship that a lot of people probably have with this, right? Where you get told like, oh, you probably can't do this, that, or the other thing. And then sometimes you can just defiantly be like, oh, well, yes, I can. And I'm going to go do it. But there's definitely lots of sad stories where that that idea of defiance or just, you know, defining what you want to do on your own terms, like it doesn't quite go your way. Right. right? Where it's either a motivator or it's evidence towards your belief, right? Like, well, I can't do it because. Or like the flip side of just being like, well, what, at what point am I fighting city hall? If, you know, you sever a nerve or, or something horrible happens at a certain point, there is going to be some stuff that we just can and can't do. Sure. Absolutely. And then that's when you adapt right? and you do things a bit differently. And that's one of my favorite parts about teaching acrobatics is like, well, here's the typical way you would do this. Oh, you have X, Y, and Z going on. Let's modify it. Let's do it a little bit differently. Make it work for you and your partner, which is really fun. Like, Things don't have to be by the book because we're all so different. Like I train things very differently with different partners simply because of the lengths of our limbs. Like I have a partner who's shorter than me and so my feet touch the ground. I have to lift them (laughs) up. I have a partner who has very long legs and like we fit together aesthetically in certain things and you just get to adapt. I like this. This is uh, for weeks, if not months now, I've been trying to get through this idea of fluidity with respect to our own identity. Mm. And I'm still kind of working out some of the details here, but the the stance or the thesis is that we want to try and be more accepting of this idea of self as being naturally fluid. You know, in a lot of traditions, even the idea of self is kind of viewed as a flawed thing because it can be so misused or it can, it can really poison our ability to like come to terms with some situation that we're in or whatever, like all of our suffering. Mm -hmm. So, so say the Buddhists is built around having an idea of self, but I think a, a reasonable compromise for those of us who have like lived a very Western lifestyle is that 
sure, maybe there's a, a weird relationship going on with our egos and our ideas of self, but perhaps as a compromise, we can just say like, oh, it's fluid. Oh, it's changing, right? Mm -hmm. These uh, concepts or whatever you decide to say about yourself or whatever stories we tell, if we can accept them as limited in that they are just snapshots and rather, rather than like truths, that's at least a step along the way mm -hmm. of being able to sort of disarm this idea. Well, and I think you almost have to be fluid in the world we live in because you might have an idea of who you are and then you're pushed up against ways that you're told you're supposed to be mm. and how you're supposed to show up and exist, especially in this country, even like, how am I supposed to be myself and also fit in with this game that I have to play? Sure. Like, yeah, I love teaching yoga and being peaceful and mindful. And I also have a child right. and a relationship and those things take work. And then those things also take healthy financial situation and you have to fit into the game and that they might bump up against what you feel is your natural self. How have you been managing the different lives or different hats that you have to wear? Oh God, it's a mess. Like <laughs> it's, it's the most amazing thing ever. I did not expect how beautiful and life-changing becoming a mother would be in the way that it has. Mm -hmm. I'm, I feel so lucky and I feel like just blown away by the experience. And on top of that, it's really hard. It's really hard to, to you know, put on pause or shift or change big parts of who I was, who I am in order to take on this role because it is all encompassing mm -hmm. and trying to fit in still working because I love work. I love to teach these things. I love, you know, a big part of my life has had to almost be put on pause. Right. And trying to fit those in becomes really challenging because my child needs me. My relationship needs me. And those things need me to also be me. So if I give up everything or stop everything, change everything, then what am I? And that's been a challenge, I think, for all three of us involved, my, my husband, my child, and I, is like figuring out how do we still have some part of our life that we began together and shift it into to this family life. And mm. that takes like having some individual time, together time, and, and this new thing, this whole new thing that needs a lot of care and attention. Yeah. I suppose this is, it's interesting because those, that change of circumstance seems to have really accelerated or, you know, mashed down the pedal of developing this sense of self, right? Like you've probably, it sounds to me like you've gone through more changes in, in less time than maybe you ever had previously. Oh God, definitely. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> and, and there's waves of it where it's, it's, change that I embrace fully and I'm really excited about and some change that's like almost a mourning of past life uh, and, and yeah. especially my my relationship with my husband it's like wow it's never just the two of us anymore yeah. and we're so lucky we have this child that we love but also it's so changed it's now there's three of us yeah <laughs> I've heard I've heard about this a lot, like the the sort of nostalgia for single life, even if it's still with that partner, mm -hmm. just the business where whether married or unmarried, what I hear is a lot of stories about this transition that happens where they are very disparate lives that just can't really share a lot other than fondness and memories mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. Sure. And it's not like I don't miss going out and partying, like those things, I think I've done plenty in my life. And so I enjoy the home life, mm. but there's just that ability to give my focus fully sure. to my partner. And I'm sure we'll get that back. <laughs> but right now it's like, well, the thing that's crying and needs me to right. feed it with my body. You've got like 18 <laughs> plus years before that happens, according <laughs> well, to some. <laughs> hopefully before that. Um, but yeah, big shifts, big shifts for all of us. And I think we're navigating pretty well. Sure. And we're also navigating the way that seems so common that it's just hard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you look at each other like, oh my God, we're exhausted. Like, how are we going to get through this day, <laughs> this week? And then you yeah. do. And then there's sweet moments and 
and then there's shit everywhere and you have to clean it <laughs> and, then, and then we have like on the other end of the spectrum the uh the, the four-tiered escalation how how much Poop i need to, to clean off my child <laughs> a lot yeah so tell me jen when is upside downness the most challenging for you Mm, literally yeah that's see oh. this is like a, a fun question because it's <laughs> open-ended well when working with a partner and being upside down that's the most challenging because now you're negotiating balance together okay and it's different day to day different with different partners so for instance if i'm trying to do a handstand on another person mm-hmm. it's called hand to hand um i had a partner for a very long time and we were very calibrated and it would feel so, so safe, but it took us a really long time to feel safe and comfortable with it. And it feels vulnerable because you're trying to figure out your own balance, but it relates to somebody else's and it's a constant nonverbal conversation with this person. And then it can be different. Like if our moods were different, Yeah. if John had too much caffeine or had tacos right before training, like (laughs) it would throw off the balance and change. So I think it's most challenging when somebody else is not only supporting you, but also counting on you. That's a fascinating level of intimacy that I feel like a lot of people maybe don't even ever experience perhaps outside of their relationships or even just all together. And that's, what's so amazing about the practice is like, There's so many layers to it. Like building trust with my partner was so cool to watch develop because we could at a certain point do things without even having to speak words. We just knew where we were supposed to go for the next move. And it really helped me in a shift in my life. I got, I got into this practice um, sort of at the perfect time for me and changed a lot of things within my physical activities and practices as well as how I handle conversations, how I handle relationships and a a whole nother level of sensitivity. Do you find that these multi-layered or or even psychic connections that you have with people, can you grow and facilitate more than one of them simultaneously? Or is it kind of like a headspace that sort of evolves from one relationship or one partner to another sort of thing? No, I think you can have them simultaneously. I had a few different people I would train different things with just mm-hmm. because they were a better fit for right, certain the, things The mechanics together. that you were talking about. Totally. And so, for instance, there's this aspect of acro that's popping where essentially you're like tossed and caught. <laughs> and I, my timing was really great with this one partner and different with the other. And so you'd have to recalibrate it. But I, I could read their timings after a warm up and still be able to work even though it was very different partner to partner same thing with like the grip of how you hold one another's hands for instance with hand to hand and having a few dedicated partners i could maintain that but i think if every day i was working with somebody different i wouldn't be able to advance right. in the way that i did because... so there's a level of accumulation that happens over time absolutely right? yeah and you're learning together. So it's not it's not necessarily a relationship that displays attributes of exclusivity, but on the other hand, there is a thing that happens where it's building and, and it, it allows you to kind of unlock destinations that you wouldn't otherwise. Totally. Or yeah. sooner. Sure. You know, because you're what we call calibrated. You're just really in sync with certain skills with one another. Is that like an industry term? calibrated yeah that's so cool <laughs> yeah so you like calibrate to it's like warming up yeah. essentially <laughs> it's it's so funny how like every field kind of accumulates its own vocabulary mm-hmm. and what that ends up doing to the level of understanding like it's kind of fun to just be able to pass with a lot of these things like i like learning about other people's trades specifically because you know i don't want to be confused with an expert but i still want to understand like when lingo is being shot totally. left right and center whole different language <laughs> And, and really, the, those languages are created for, like, efficiency and fast communication. Like, right. oh, if we're speaking the same language, because you could describe something, a ton, like, 10 different ways, yeah. like a shape. But if you make a word for it, then you know right away. This is the evolution of uh, acronyms in a lot of organizations as well. Mm-hmm. Inside speak. How does the presence of these connections that you have with your acro partners and, and the people that you train with that level of intimacy or that level of 
multi-layered connectiveness. Like I can only imagine that can introduce some interesting complications to your romantic life. Does that, does that show up at home in any way? Or, or do you guys have to manage the sort of the rule book for how you're balancing these different lives? That's a great question. And, and I see it happen a lot, mostly in, in people that I teach and my students. I was so fortunate that my, my primary partner in Acro um, was gay. So there mm. was never that boundary crossing. There sure. was always, we had a great friendship. We still do. Um, we trained really well together. And I think that made it feel even more safe uh, because there was never a question. And that comes up often, though, for people in my community because people will will catch feelings or right. feel attracted to somebody. And I try my best in conversations one-on-one with students to help them handle boundaries, sure. what's appropriate, what's not, because two people might have an attraction to one another and hit it off, and great, a relationship comes from that. Or it could be just one-sided, and there needs to be a conversation of, I appreciate your feelings, and please respect my boundaries. And then there's romances that occur through Acro, and then they break up. Right. And then there's the fallout. And what does like, that do when it's a small community? Yeah, right. Can see Who that gets being to a challenge. stay? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is, it is tough. I mean, like anything you do where you're spending time with people, it can get complicated mm. and you try your best to, to hold your best integrity. And, and I think, you know, for, for my husband, he's like, whoa, this is a practice where people are just climbing all over each other. Like, I don't know how comfortable I feel with that. So we have very clear boundaries, of course. And the people that I work with are friends, some men, some women, and it's entirely professional. Yeah. Um, and I ma- maintain that through a previous relationship when I was still in Acro and... Because for me, I didn't want to cross those lines yeah. of my profession and my private romantic life. Naturally. I mean, I wouldn't suspect yeah. that anybody would aim to do that. But but it happens. And yeah. I've seen it happen a lot. And it is understandable. Of course, like you, like you do anything with a group of people where there's bonding and there's mm. trust involved. And this is a physical activity. And so I think people can easily have feelings or... Yeah, I mean, I, speaking personally, have definitely experienced that level of intensity. And it shows up, you know, in martial arts, it showed up in kind of a funny way because you're all kicking the crap out of each other, but there's still just like a lot of touching. And so mm-hmm. it, it's, it occupies a space that I think is unlike anything else that we have to deal with. Right. It's certainly easy to confuse those feelings. but Which is unfortunate. An unfortunate part of our culture, right? We don't have many opportunities for safe, appropriate physical touch without people assuming intent. Mm. So often when I'm teaching, other than like a Valentine's Day workshop, I'm teaching consent, teaching Mm -hmm. appropriate language, safe touch, those sorts of things, because sadly, adults... (laughs) <laughs> haven't had much experience. You don't get a lot of training that, out, right? outside yeah. of yeah grade school when everybody's roughhousing and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. and even then, it's not really allowed, right? Mm-hmm. So we don't, unless you have siblings. Like my house, it was like the fucking WWE every day, <laughs> and <laughs> that's just what it was. Like my brothers were trying to murder me, and <laughs> vice versa. And you have that kind of rough and tumble, and then if you don't have outlets for that, it gets easily confused. Like somebody who has no physical touch can then be easily confused by something like acrobatics or even like a yoga adjustment. Yeah, um, I think we're we're lacking in safe, appropriate physical touch. That's a, that's a good prescription for the world, I suppose. <laughs> Hug each other. Yeah. Do more hugs. I like <laughs> With this. With consent. Yeah. Ask, for, Cons- ask first. Don't consensually just hug, hug each other. I, I see the makings of a, a poster or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Which um, is funny. There's um, an, a festival for these acrobats. Mm-hmm. And there's also the this conversation that had been going on of, of don't assume you can just hug me. And somebody made shirts that are like, ask first before hugging and like <laughs> very valid. Like, yeah, just because we're all into the same activity, like just because I hug this person doesn't mean I want to hug that person. And it just brought up in the culture of acrobatics recently, like consent was a huge topic. And thankfully so. I think there were a lot of conversations that need to be 
had and now they're happening. That's a great thing. And uh, whether that's a part of a national climate or just the entry level stuff that you take in the first few classes that you're going through, right? Like there's, there's always going to be this foundations thing that happens with any sport or activity or whatever. If understanding the consequences of what you're doing in this sort of indirect fashion becomes more part of the vocabulary, that to me sounds like the entire community sort of evolving into this better understanding of themselves or, or what, what it is that happens when you get good at this or do this craft or whatever. Right. And we hope so. We always hope for evolution. And I think what was going on in, in the country, you know, Me Too movement brought up a lot going on in, in many microcosms, ours especially, the acro community. And I think they're getting better at it. One of the things that we've often joked about inside of the yoga community is that you always, I feel like everybody has feelings about each other one way or the other no matter what like there's just this level of intensity in those connections and it sounds to me like that mechanic translates into a lot of different places well and then of course you have in any scenario where there's like a leader like a teacher um that bears great responsibility of how you protect people who are coming to you for like Church can be people's religion, their therapy, their physical therapy. And we've seen, of course, people abuse that. There are some big names yeah. <laughs> who've abused that. And when it explodes, it can, it's, it's more epic. Yeah, I think that, that it takes some sensitivity of a teacher to be welcoming, friendly, loving, and hold boundaries in order to keep their students safe and themselves safe. And that happens in any dynamic where there's power. And power just being one person talking at the rest. When you started to get into this world, was was the weight of all of that kind of bestowed upon you as you were sort of training to become a teacher and these sorts of things? A bit. We talked about it in my in my first training, which is a while ago now. That was a big a big topic of the responsibility of a teacher, and we also knew of really bad examples right. of teachers who were up higher up than us. And so it was kind of this feeling of, yeah, you want to make really good choices and you can learn from other people's bad behavior, (laughs) I guess. I've read some of these horror stories, like things that show up in, you know, in the kind of the oddest of places. I mean, it it turns out that this is maybe a more prevalent uh, mechanic or framework that, shows up in more places than I guess we had ever expected before, right? Like we're hearing about this stuff in the national news, but like I've also picked up plenty of stories of like yoga teachers or like Mm -hmm. people who live in ashrams for years. And then all of a sudden, like there's something kind of like underneath the surface of all that. That's maybe not as they're shady, savory or, or integrated. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Upright as, as they sort of might presume to be. And that's, that's a challenging works. That's a, I don't know how, how to, work through that. That's a, a difficult thing. Well, I thing. think what it is is understanding that there are predators in this world and they will be anywhere. Right. Right? Like in the church. They can traverse or transcend whatever boundaries of an institution or a structure. Totally. They're going to find a place that is safe for them to do what it is they want to do. Right. Take mm. advantage per se. And then there are lots that are not. Mm. I want to talk about vulnerability and your experiences might be a good place to start. How does it show up for you in this practice and in this world that you've begun to cultivate? Um, it shows up in a lot of different ways. I think in the beginning, uh, when I became a teacher at first, it's putting yourself in front of a group of people, demonstrating a skill and thinking, oh God, I better not mess this up. I'm told that's a little bit terrifying from time to time. Oh, absolutely. And same with, you know, not only teaching acro, but with yoga, I was a nervous wreck and took several years to feel comfortable speaking in front of people and then to physically demonstrate you don't want to show up and come off as like a fraud. Sure. (laughs) Right. What were some of the enablers that got you through that process? Part of it in my first training was... We would teach in front of our peers and they would instantly do feedback. And at first, that's the worst experience (laughs) ever. You're like, oh my God. And then you get better at receiving feedback and it improves you. So by the end of my training, I finally felt confident to 
to be myself as a teacher. Yeah. And that was my biggest breakthrough, which helped me with, with yoga, teaching yoga as well. But yeah, it's that fear of somebody seeing your flaws and then telling them to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I think that's... that's Yeah, that's. Scary. I feel like there's... I don't know what the ordering of the stages are if we're talking about these kind of ladders of escalation, but in the worlds that I walk in, we talk a lot about reviewing the tape. Mm. And that can be this thing where maybe it's physically actually just a camera pointed at you. And that makes people do weird things. Right. And it's even stranger when you have to go back later on and look at it and say like, oh, well, here's me. When I think about that idea of reviewing the tape and all the exposure that that invokes in me like emotionally like watching me even just do stuff that's really not even emotional like go skiing or do my handstands or whatever it's it's kind of weird to watch yourself that seems to pale in comparison to getting that feedback straight from your peers it seems a little bit more intense in a way it can i think though we're often more critical of ourselves and a lot of the feedback i would get was more encouragement based like okay, you did this, next time try this. And and really, you know, so it wasn't as less harsh than I was on myself, like, oh, you idiot. Um, but it's funny, you, you say replaying the tape, I I just rewatched a performance that uh, my partner and I had done years ago, and it was our first on stage, and my first since probably like being in second grade and doing like the Thanksgiving <laughs> thing, which was what were you? Then. Were you like a tree or I think I was a, a pilgrim, and <laughs> I'm pretty sure I dropped the candy corn all over the stage. <laughs> and I was like, that's it, I'm done performing. <laughs> but we had decided to be part of this group called Art is Action, and they raise money and they, and they do all these great things, but they really want to use different types of performance as art. And so my partner and I worked on this piece. It was an acro piece. And doing the acro itself was the easy part. The hardest part was walking across the stage. So here I am, like we had created this piece about a relationship that was kind of like pulling apart and coming back together. And so we wanted to physically show that. Mm. And so... I would try to walk really slowly and then I'd watch the video and I'm like, I'm going so fast. Like in my mind, I'm going so slow, but I was going so fast. And I think that that was the most vulnerable I'd felt was being on a stage with lights, with people that I admire in the audience, my friends and family all watching and trying to portray emotions on the stage was so hard. And so I watched this video again and like, of course there are things like, man, I would have done this a little bit different, cleaned up this or that, but it wasn't as horrifying to watch. And I was really proud of just doing the thing that was so scary. I wonder what it takes to get to that point of almost indifference when you start to review the tape or whatever, like. Well, it had been years. Right, enough time (laughs) passes. I mean, this is the same thing. how can you make this jump into indifference, I suppose, over time? like I wonder if it's not indifference, though, but rather accept it. Like, that's me. That is what I look like. That is how I move. And I remember having to do a similar, like a video of me just speaking at a, like a leadership training mm-hmm. and then watching it back. And I had done something like that a few years before that was absolutely horrifying. And then doing it this time around, I think there was just a new layer of self-acceptance by that stage in my life where I was like, all right, that's what your voice sounds like. That's Those are the faces you make. <laughs> your hair's a little messy, but that's me. And I think it was not wanting to feel the need to change those things and just be more comfortable with who I am. That's the sweetest, most compassionate thing that we can do for ourselves. And it's hard. And it's, it's hard. It's <laughs> not took a natural a, skill. Yeah. yeah. It, it took a long time. And I don't know, I don't always feel that way when I see myself or like rewatch, review the tape of, of whatever. But I think that's something to strive for is, is having acceptance at the very least compassion for ourselves. Sure. Because I think in our minds, we show up a lot differently than we really do. And then we look at it and we're like, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's really jarring. But then, I mean, that's the kind of the point that we're trying to make here is that 
even if it is really jarring, that doesn't mandate that it becomes a story. It doesn't require us to make these big adjustments or get really upset or whatever. Like you just have to be real with it and be present with it. And it sounds to me like you're, you've, you've got to do that on a regular basis <laughs> at times, but <laughs> it's like the, the getting like your portrait taken mm-hmm. ever. Have you ever had that like horrifying reveal of like, Oh, <laughs> oh no, that's what I look like. Or that's what this, the person taking the picture thought I looked like. And like, it's even more extreme when you go to like the carnival and get, um, one of those artists that make caricatures. the caricatures. Yeah. Yes. That happened to me when I was a kid and I didn't quite understand the concept <laughs> of it. So when he handed it back to me, like my teeth were very far apart as a kid and this guy accentuated that of course so I had like my field goal teeth and like big forehead and like I was I (laughs) cried when I got I'm like oh my god he's making fun of me and that's you know I didn't quite get it like I couldn't laugh at myself at that stage I was too too young maybe or, or too sensitive and yeah I think seeing how other people see you is a very vulnerable thing and like seeing someone's interpretation of you. (laughs) This kind of answers a question that I was going to ask you about how your personal practice is being affected by your work. It sounds like being on stage as a profession or as a, a lifestyle or even as a hobby, like it's going to produce these pretty profound shifts in the way sort of you understand yourself and have that dialogue internally. Yeah, I think it's made me feel a bit more comfortable with myself. But at the same time, I I hadn't had that feeling of being on a stage again since I was like the pilgrim in second grade. There was an immediate rush after that I had never experienced that made me think like, oh, I want to do this again. Is that what got you hooked? Uh, Yeah, but I mean, we didn't perform all that much. We did maybe a handful of times over a few years. And we got to the point where we were performing at like a big Halloween party and we were having fun on the stage. And I was like, okay, I kind of get what this performing thing is about. But that's not my natural state by any means. But I got more comfortable with it. It sounds like kind of the the next half of the checkerboard is, is just living in that place of like, not only do I understand the mechanics of this, but then I also get to really flow with it and really mm-hmm. have fun with it. And, yeah. and that piece, and we were Tweedledee and Tweedledum, so we were clowning around with each other and being <laughs> really goofy, and that that is closer to my natural state than this like graceful whatever <laughs> of our other piece. So I could much easily put that hat on of a clown and goof around with my partner and put on a good performance. <laughs> And have fun with it. This is like that that thing that happens sometimes where actors often describe getting roles that almost feel like cheating because you just get to play yourself. Right, right. right. Like I am a clown. Like, I think this like this was a quote associated with Christopher Walken. He's just like, I'm not an actor because I just show up and I'm me on stage. And, he just has a phenomenal voice. Right, exactly. You just be the goofy person that you are. And if it turns out that that level of self-love and that level of confidence can actually turn into this thing that radiates like that actually turns into a very we'll say marketable but that i mean i don't mean it in the business sense but it's just like a very pragmatic skill to be carrying with you right typeclassed as a, a clown what would you do if you had more time when juggling all these hats that you wear oh my god in my own experience i find that there's never enough time and when Wait you, till you have a child. Right. Like, <laughs> it only gets worse. <laughs> I thought I had like a good amount of time and then I had a baby and I'm like, I'm in the negative bank of time. Like <laughs> if you had asked me that question a year ago, mm, my answer would be almost. so different. Right. Today, answering that question, if I had more time, I would take a bath. <laughs> I would get a massage. I would brush my hair. Like the basics would be covered if I had more time. I think a year ago, me, if I had more time, I mean, God, a year ago, I was pregnant. A year and a half ago, me. Yeah, I think I would work on developing myself more as a teacher in the things that I'm passionate about. And I still do. I, I do like, if you want to call it continuing education for ACRO, and I would spend more on different yoga trainings because you can get so stagnant and you can as a teacher, I think, fall into 
like a script that you're used to and comfortable with. And so I think it's really important to open yourself up to being vulnerable again, mm-hmm. of learning something new, trying to teach something new, or in a different way at the very least. Mm. Well, on the subject of having enough time, I think that's all the time we have. <laughs> what I'm carrying away from this conversation, there's an individual mandate. There's a thing that we have to go through in our lives that is communicated so beautifully by you, Jen. This business of bridging some kind of acceptance between where you are in the present or in uncomfortable moments while you're upside down or any other way, there's always going to be sort of fountains, sources of infinite imbalance or discomfort. And the bridge that we build to go from that place or understand that that is going to be there and you can't fight it, it's, it's gravity. And finding equanimity in our own lives and our own personalities and understandings of our understanding of ourselves is it's sacred. It's, it's a beautiful, important thing that just can't be cheated on. And last thing I want to add to that for balance, like you can't figure out the balance until you go too far. Mm. Like you have got to fall over to find out where too far is. Cause if you play in the realm of not quite enough, you'll never get there. Well, Jen, thank you so much for coming in and teaching us about balance and upside downness and all of the other wonderful things that we seem to be simultaneously. It's great to have you. Thank you. Is there any way we can find you? Uh, do you want to shout out to anybody onto the internet or yeah. anywhere else? So mainly my, my teachings of acrobatics are through Flight Club, and you can find me on flightclubdenver.com. Not Bite Club, Flight. Flight Club, it's a pun. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) you get it. (laughs) Great. Thank you again for your time and for your teaching. And thank you, you, everybody, for listening. Have a great evening. Shit I'm Not Proud Of is made with love in Denver, Colorado, and is recorded at Creative Density Coworking. If you need a low-cost podcasting studio to record from in Denver, look up Creative Density at www.creativedensity.com. Next week, we'll be looking at what happens when you really piss somebody off, but don't really know why. And also, meditations during peacetime. We sincerely hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.